everyone. Welcome to So Emo I Fell Apart, a podcast dedicated to all things emo and pop punk for the naughty oddies. And today, I'm one of your hosts, Rhea. I am your other host, Chloe. And what are we getting into today, Chloe? Oof. We're getting into the rise, not the fall yet, of Panic at the Disco. <laughs> Their illustrious and incredibly fast rise to fame. Fucking meteoric rise to fame. Like, the fastest I've ever seen a band get famous. Truly. And we can get into it a little bit later, but fully every single time I think about how quickly Panic! at the Disco got notoriety and then got as big as they did so fast, I fully agree with the dude from Cartel. You didn't pay your dues! <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like, they. <laughs> this shouldn't have happened the way that it did. But, but it did. It, it, and we're going to detail did. <laughs> all of it to you. So let's discuss it. Let's get the fuck into it. Before we get into fully discussing it, just at the top of the episode, I'm going to start doing the annoying, like, we're content creators and we want people to like our stuff. Mm-hmm. So if you like what we do here, please rate, review, and follow our podcast on our podcatcher of choice. Like, if you have literally two seconds on, like, Spotify or Apple Podcasts, it takes you so little time to throw us a couple stars on rating it. If you have more than a couple seconds, consider leaving us a written review. It really gives us a lot of, like, boosting in the algorithm and gives us a lot more credibility for what we do here. Um, and additionally, if you like what we do here, please share it with your friends. Like word of mouth is the most powerful way of getting people into the thing that you like. So if you truly just like start bothering people, if you like what we do and give us a follow over on Instagram and Twitter at so emo pod for updates when episodes go live and also for all the really fun goofs we do here. So now that I got that out of the way, let's get into this. Mm-hmm. So we start 20 fucking years ago. That made me feel... So- I almost spit out my energy drink. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's alarming because, like, I still think of 20 years ago as, like, stuff that happened, like, before I was born and shouldn't remember. And instead, it's stuff that happened while I was, like, an entire person who was old enough to take public transit by herself. Yeah. So this began 20 years ago in 2003 when oh, some children... Back in Las Vegas, <laughs> founded their very first band, a Blink-182 cover band called Pet Salamander. The members of this band were Ryan Ross, Spencer Smith, Brent Wilson, and some guy named Trevor Howell. Uh, Ryan and Spencer had been going to the same private Catholic prep school. I think that Brent also went to this school, and that's how they knew him. They invited mm-hmm. him to play bass. And I'm not sure how they met Trevor Howell, because as far as I can tell, this guy didn't continue, like, a music career, and there's really not information on him. It's classic, like, I'm in sixth grade, and I'm going to start the greatest rock band in the world. And here's the other guy that I kind of sort of know, and we're sort of kind of friends, but I know that he plays drums. Mm-hmm. So you're in the band now, dog. Yeah, these and guys are formula pretty young. Because I've been so many friends, like, I've been friends with these kinds of guys my entire life. Like, I have friends in like 2005 who started a band and they just kept playing all throughout like middle school and high school and they were a green day cover band at first oh my god so this is like an an uh, early 2000s rite of passage to do incredible the pet salamander angel fire website literally still exists it has just like pet salamander at the top um in all caps it says thanks for coming and checking out our site if you have any shows that we can play at email us please uh, the email address is blinkexists182 at, LOL, at AOL.com. 
there is a link that you can click on for pictures where you can get photos of Brent, Trevor, Spencer, um, and Ryan. A lot of these pictures are really just like them like chilling at like as far as I can tell. This is like a Taco Bell. Yeah. And just like in old abandoned cars and shit. Just like literally children just like hanging out in Las Vegas. Yeah. This it's, is this is classic teen boy behavior. Yeah, it's super cute. Um, they're truly just vibing. Um, some of the links are broken because this website is twenty years old. Ancient. Like I haven't heard the phrase "angel fire" in a really long time. Yeah. At some point, this band changes their name to the Summer League, and they release uh, one song called "Hey Matt, the front of my car has got your name on it" because I don't think my fist could do the job. Um, so clearly, like taking a lot of inspo from Fall Out Boy already mm-hmm. with like the long song titles. Like it's such an obvious callback to uh, tell that Mick he just made my list of things to do today. Yep. And then with the parentheses of a continuing sentence. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So Ryan Ross, especially, was like a huge fan of Blink-182, My Chemical Romance, and Fall Out Boy, uh, who at this time had only been around for like two years, but were like already Mm -hmm. gaining a ton of momentum and were already like becoming like heavy hitters in the scene, especially online. Um, At some point, Trevor stops being in the band. Um, and Brent, who has now been kicked out of the private Catholic school because he got expelled for smoking weed, um, and, and is now is going to be a continuing theme throughout <laughs> yeah. his life, um, and is now going to public school with Brandon Yuri. Brandon, who is not going to Catholic school because he is Mormon, and he invites Brendan to join the band because he's like, this guy plays guitar. Mm-hmm. And also a thousand other instruments. Yeah, and also every fucking instrument that you can imagine. So they started as a Blink cover band, but then they soon started writing their own songs under the name Panic at the Disco, which was a line from a song called Panic by the band Name Taken. Mm -hmm. They get really into like writing music together um, to the point that Ryan drops out of university to focus on music. At this point, they've been doing this for like maybe like two, three years, I guess. Yeah. And at this point, Ryan is the oldest member out of Panic at the Disco. So like he was in college when everyone else was still in high school. Yeah. Trying so to make this band work. It's like he would have been in like first or second year, freshman, I think. maybe. And everyone else was I like, think he was like 19 when he dropped out. Yeah. If I'm so I, he would have been in like first year. Yeah. And like everyone else was like in like grade 12 or whatever. Mm-hmm. So Ryan dropped out of university to focus on being in Panic! The Disco, which led to a major falling out with his father. Brendan like stopped going to high school and was kicked out of his Mormon parents home when he announced his intention to focus on the band. So already they were like struggling as a band that had not released any music and had not played any shows. They did not have any momentum, any music that they had nothing to show for what they were doing but like they all had this level of dedication that was already causing them to like really like fuck up their personal lives Mm -hmm. you know it's like kind of admirable that it's like okay you're like dedicated to this you believe in this but like there's this is so scary to me (laughs) i like absolutely not like Mm -hmm. i would never kick a child out of my home for making a stupid decision like that oh god no i would still give them like nurturing and love and care and also tell them maybe don't do that right like that's the thing is i can definitely see telling a kid like hey like you need to have something you know but like i'm not kicking them out because like okay they don't have a job what 
the the solution to that isn't make them homeless and make their life worse. Yeah, and at this point, I think this is when Brendan got his like smoothie hut job. Yeah, to like, like support himself and stuff. Yeah, and they were like renting like a practice space, and he was like working at this fucking smoothie hut and like mm-hmm. using that paycheck to pay for like wherever he was living and like to pay for the practice space. It's like fuck, like that's a lot to do when you are um a teenager in Las Vegas. I think he was like fully like 16 maybe at this point. 16 or 17, yeah. 16 or 17? Yeah. Like they were still all fully under 20s, under 21s at least yeah. when they got really big. So, and I think he would have been around 17 because he they graduated from high school. Like he finished his high school online while they were doing Oh, right, right, a right, right, right. you can't sweat out. So they have you know fucked up their lives and are making this music mostly like in garage band on laptops not playing shows they don't really have demos i mean they have like a couple demos but they are very like non-standard for what demos sounded like at this point in time like it was not super instrument driven it was not super guitar driven it was a lot of drum machines a lot of beats that ryan ross would have produced in garage band they had the idea of what they wanted to sound like but they didn't know how to physically do it yet so they were doing it on laptops and the way that they came to be introduced to pete wentz and signed to decadence is super fuzzy because the story has been told about a million times and it kind of changes with each iteration and kind of slips and slides all over the place. It's like an exquisite corpse of what this story is like. Yeah. It is like, uh, or even like, it's the story of Theseus. It is <laughs> like, is it really the story of how Ryan Ross met Pete Wentz anymore? Like the original one? Or is it a new, uh, an entirely different one? And is it the same story? Yeah, exactly. So we're pulling from like a few different sources here. There's like an article in uh, Scrunchy, which is an online zine that discusses and like compiles a bunch of the interactions that Ryan had with Pete Wentz online that were publicly available mm-hmm. over like LiveJournal and Fallout Boy's blog. Um, there's MTV articles by James Montgomery. There are quotes from the oral history of Decadence. Um, there's like a ton of different places where the story is told it's also gets retold pretty similarly like to what we have now in the um where are your boys tonight book by chris payne mm. uh, brendan and spencer repeat like the most popular version of this story which is we heard pete wentz was starting a label and you know shot in the dark we tried to send wentz a link on live journal we tried to email him we were really self-deprecating in the email like hey man this isn't really this is really cool uh don't even worry about it It was so sad, so sad. He might have just felt bad for us. Like, I'll sign these losers. Ryan half-heartedly repeats this on a podcast from 2019. I bugged Pete from Fallout Boy on some, like, he had an email or something. I don't know. From an old MTV article by James Montgomery. We knew what was going to happen when we made this record. Either people were going to love us or they were going to hate us because of the way we got signed. We had recorded a couple demos on my laptop, put them online, and sent a link to Pete through his live journal. He listened to the stuff and drove down from Los Angeles, where Fall Out Boy were recording from under the cork tree, to listen to us at band practice. So he heard us and he signed us. And that was pretty much it. So basically the only thing that remains a constant in every story is that somehow they got a hold of Pete Wentz and convinced him mm-hmm. to listen to the sam- the songs. That's the only Which, thing that stays consistent. <laughs> yeah, and like that's crazy because I can only imagine... Either it was a case of like 
Pete Wentz was getting so many messages like this from other bands mm-hmm. or no one had gone through the effort to go on like live journal, aim email, et cetera, et cetera, to get their demos heard by him. It was yeah. also the benefit of like from under the cork tree was still being recorded. Mm-hmm. They had not hit the mega stardom that they started to achieve when, you know, dance dance and sugar were coming were sugar were going down was coming out. So like, there's gotta be some level of accessibility there. That was feels weird to us now, but was definitely attainable then oh yeah like pete was still but also, so accessible at this time like you could just like log into aim and like chat with him yeah which is it, insanity mm-hmm. and i also fully believe that pete pete doesn't feel like the kind of guy that would just like take a gamble on anyone especially when they were like he was in the midst of trying to start his own imprint at field by ramen mm-hmm. that he was going to be taking this incredibly seriously And as we talked about, like, in the oral history of Decadence, that, like, he was looking for bands that didn't really fit the typical emo, pop-punk, hardcore mold and was Mm -hmm. finding bands with different sounds. And just heard from the demos that these kids had something different and something special going on. Yeah. So, like, I fully, in my true heart of hearts, believe that, like, he heard something special in Panic! Oh, he must have, yeah. And so, like, it was like a flash pan, like, a perfect storm situation of... Being unique and different, having no demos, and having Pete Wentz be accessible enough at this point to give you the biggest chance of your life. Yeah. And they obviously understood the, like, the, what's the, the stakes involved in this. For sure. (laughs) Exactly. The scrunchy zine article kind of gets into um, what this author, whose name is Sarah, no last name given. Mm -hmm. Um, So Sarah says... Like, puts forward a theory that Ryan had a big hand in getting this band noticed by Pete Wentz, not just through emailing him or messaging him on AIM or whatever, but by being a very active member of Fall Out Boy's live journal community, mm-hmm. Fall Out Boy Love, and also by being a very active member of the Tight Pants live journal community, which is where <sighs> emo boys would post pictures of themselves wearing tight pants and, like, girls would... I mean, mostly girls would, like, comment just, like, talking about how hot they were. Um, yeah. So. <laughs> Which is where we get the famous line, hi, I'm Ryan. My, My chemical, chemical romance, romance makes me, me dance. dance. <laughs> yeah, so, like, My Ryan. My favorite post of all time. <laughs> Ryan was a huge member of Fall Out Boy Love. He was super active in there. So, like, in 2004, someone posted, what's up, kids? Michelle, 18, Massachusetts, just joined. I love Fall Out Boy. Anyone going to see them in Boston at Axis on June 13th? Can't wait. This show will rule. And I predict Pete will single-handedly bring back the John Cusack, wear your collar up trend. Haha, <laughs> watch out, all you scenesters. And Ryan replied, I do that, but all the kids at school look at me funny, like, I don't realize it's up. I think that's why I do it. So there's, like, a ton of comments from Ryan just, like, basically talking about how he's emulating how pete dresses he uh Mm -hmm. is listening to all of pete's favorite music um the way that like all of a fever you can't sweat out is based on chuck polinick novels ryan started reading those because pete posted a blog entry in november Mm -hmm. of 2003 talking about like reading chuck polinick and then we both read Chuck Palahniuk because of Panic of the Disco. Yeah, exactly. It's like, <laughs> so that's like one of the things that gets like a little bit lost to history is that like Ryan got into 
like Fight Club and Invisible Monsters and everything in the first place because Pete posted about like reading Fight Club and Ryan started reading Fight Club and would like go to mm-hmm. shows when Fall Out Boy played in Las Vegas and like would talk to Pete about like reading the same books as him. So they mm-hmm. had met in person long before Ryan Ross tried to like get his band signed. Yeah. They met in person, I believe. Uh, May 8th, 2004, when Ryan posted a comment in the Fall Out Boy Love community that he had met Wentz at the November 16th show at the House of Blues in Las Vegas and <clears throat> talked about like how nice Pete was, uh, said like he's a rad guy, he remembered my name, uh, he remembered the name of my band, like like we talked a little, um, they came back in February, he still remembered my name, he still remembered my band's name, like these were not the only conversations that they had. Like, Ross talked about how they would, like, chat online. He said, like, evening out with your girlfriend was his favorite record cycle because, like, that's when, like, him and Pete would, like, really be chatting on AIM together. Mm -hmm. Though it is worth noting that Patrick would later say that evening out with your girlfriend and take this to your grave were released, like, so close together that people describing them as, like, separate album cycles and like separate eras or like kind of engaging in revisionist history like that evening out with your girlfriend came out and then take this to your grave came out basically right away Mm -hmm. so there's definitely like a rapport that was built between these two so like i again of course there was probably some talent involved where pete was like oh shit these guys are actually good Mm -hmm. but it sounds like pete was so familiar with ryan and like heard about his band and like processed and understood that this kid had a band And this is just me, like, filling in the gaps and, you know, hypothesizing. But it almost feels, like, a little bit like, yeah, yeah, I'll I'll humor this kid and, like, tell him that I remember his band. And then when Ryan actually, like, put his money where his mouth is and was like, here's our demos, Pete was like, oh, shit, you guys were serious. Mm -hmm. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So in addition to, like, this and, like, him being, like, a huge member of Fall Out Boy Love and, like, posting all the time, uh, Ryan also advertised his band on Tight Pants. Like, where mm-hmm. he would also be, like, posting his selfies. Um, said, I'm in this band called Panic at the Disco, and I'm thinking all of you should go listen. Because if a hundred people can comment on my creepy looks, I'd truly appreciate if you all would listen to what I love to do. Don't be too elite. Trust me, it'll be, like, totally seen to like us. And Which, so- wow. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And here, so no one complains <laughs> of text only, even though I'm not spamming. Got some new gear. Please go listen to the stuff. We try our best to make it danceable. Um, the image here is like a broken photo bu- photo bucket link, so I don't know which of his selfies he posted. Mm-hmm. But this was in October 24th of 2004. On November 28th, a user in Fall Out Boy Love creates a post reading, So this Panic at the Disco Band is fucking freaking me out. It has to be Patrick, right? Noting that Brandon Urie's voice in this era sounded so close to Patrick's. Yeah, it was remarkably similar. <laughs> yeah, it's like so fucking similar how Brendan sounded. Like he, uh, mm-hmm. I think, had like a bit more inflection or uh, enunciation than Patrick did at this time. Yeah, because he's more classically trained in singing. Yeah, and I think maybe had a little bit more confidence in the lyrics than Patrick had at the time. Mm-hmm. So like. It, it, but it was super noticeable like so different sound but like people were convinced that like this was Patrick basically like soft launching a new band mm-hmm. and so that was posted at like 12.33pm um, the same day on November 28th 2004 at 2pm 91 minutes later 
Pete created a post in Fallout Boy Love titled, Woomp There It Is, reading, Hey, buddy from Panic at the Disco, what's your email address? And Ryan responded, Hey, Pete, my email is blink1exists182 at AOL.com. And the rest of that is history. And it's crazy because, like, it almost feels like Pete was trying to shut down that there <laughs> that there was any chance of, like, Patrick doing yeah. his own <laughs> thing called Panic at the Disco being like, well, I better nip this in the bud before it gets out of hand mm-hmm. here. <laughs> so. But also just that, like, noticing that people in his own community were starting to listen to this band mm-hmm. and say, like, this sounds good. Like, this kind of sounds like what we're already listening to, but, like, different. People were talking about it. Girls thought that Ryan was hot. And like, he was. This was. <laughs> yeah, and he was. Um, Even like, in his, like, cringy uh, mirror selfies with the digital camera and his page boy haircut Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) shit and like also like just the way that ryan talked about his band the way that ryan Mm -hmm. advertised his band he was so shrewd with it even then being like okay like everyone here thinks i'm hot so go listen to my band it's going to be cool to listen to my band like you know like he he knew how to sell it virgo king yeah and like it's very Like, I think this is why he was so drawn to Pete Wentz and why they got along so well is that they both have this quality where they are so aware of their exact position in the scene, their exact position in the Mm -hmm. conversation, and they can see the trajectory that culture is going to take and they know how to, like, get ahead of it. Absolutely. Like, we talked, I forget what episode we were talking about it in, but like how Panic! at the Disco kind of pioneered this circusy Baroque pop genre and threw it into the mainstream when it was Mm -hmm. previously incredibly underground yeah and like definitely shaped culture from like 2005 to 2006 Mm -hmm. like breezy stuff yeah we're gonna get into the actual like recording of a fever you can't sweat out but first let's hear a word from our friends over at moonshot podcasts Okay, hello, (laughs) this is Clem Bianchi. I'm a courier, delivering mail and space, one package at a time. If you're hearing this message, I need some help. I'm trying to deliver a package to a guy on Pluto. Says his name is Gorge Flummox. If anyone knows a Gorge Flummox on Pluto, please let him know I've been trying to reach him about his box of Lunarian cheese. I know the box is full of cheese because for the last few weeks, I've started hearing things when I touch my cargo. When I pick up a letter or a package, I hear conversations and sometimes even see things tied to whoever the mail is for or from. I call it the letter opener. It's yanked me into some real situations. A haunted house, a pizza delivery drag race, and even a revolution to take a city back from the bigwigs who keep its hoverboard sports engine humming. You can hear all about it on Additional Postage Required, a bi-weekly audio drama on the Moonshot Podcast Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Anyway, if you know Gorge, Please tell him to give me a call. I think his cheese is starting to move around in the box. So we get into their inaugural debut album, the recording of A Fever You Can't Sweat Out. Mm-hmm. And like famously or perhaps infamously, the band was signed and A Fever You Can't Sweat Out was recorded before the band had ever played a live show, which is 
bonkers. Yeah. Like, you have no clue if these dudes have any stage presence. You have no clue if they know how to even, like, work a crowd live. You have... There's no experience. Like, the only experience, like, these dudes probably have is, like, maybe a school talent show. Yeah. And, like, Brendan singing in choir at his church. So, that's nuts. But... So Pete drove to Vegas with Jim Cross Hero frontman Travis McCoy to watch Panic play in their practice space that they had. Mm-hmm. And we have, uh, just to reiterate from the oral history of Decadence, Pete said, I drove to Vegas because maybe I was terrified to fly at the time. I can't remember totally, but I met the Panic guys. They had a practice space and didn't even really know how to totally play the songs. They had all these electronic elements and they were like playing them acoustic, but it was clear that there was a thing. Then Travi says, I was in Pete... I was with Pete when we met them in Vegas and they hadn't even played a show yet. They had to get their shit together real quick. The demo was so fresh and the sound was so new. They were mixing pop punk with all these electronic beats and shit. And I was like, whoa, you need to hop on this for real. And so Pete ended up signing it. Mm -hmm. And during the recording, they were able to relocate from Vegas to Maryland, which is crazy culture shock. Yeah. (laughs) Like very different place to do. To record the album from June to September of 2005 with only a few rough garage band demos. So, like, you can actually go and still find and hear these demos now. They sound fucking wild. And it's a Kamisato and Time to Dance, which are, like, my two favorite songs off of the They're so good. Out. They're crazy. And um, the shells of some more of the songs on the album. And also, during this time, Brendan also provided guest vocals for the Fall Boy song, Seven Minutes in Heaven, at Van Halen. Off of a fever you can't. Nope, not off a of fever you can't sweat out. That was the Panic at the Disco album mm-hmm. um, from Under the Cork Tree. Yeah, and that's what we get for Ryan Ross wanting to pe- be Pete once so badly that I confuse album titles and song titles uh-huh. despite listening to these songs for decades. What feels like decades and almost is decades. Yeah. Um. So the recording process seems to have been like a really contentious period. Um, because not only were these a group of teenagers at like a huge pivotal point in their life, uh, half of them only having recently finished high school online, but they had also never played a show. Um, so they didn't know yet like what was and wasn't possible to do musically. They didn't know, like they didn't have the like foresight to think like, okay, we can do this in the studio, but we will not be able to do this live. Right. Ultimately, it seems to have worked to their advantage because like it led them to push boundaries that they fully didn't even really know existed um, Mm -hmm. and do things that no other bands were doing. In the Las Vegas review in 2005, the band discusses like what they like felt about the recording process. Um, So Ryan says last spring, the label wanted the band to head to college park, Maryland to record an album with producer Matt Squire, who has helmed records for thrice. The only problem was Ross was attending university of Las Vegas and the rest of the band was still in high school. Ross dropped out of college. The band pushed the recording to June. Brendan graduated high school, and then we left to record. Spencer and Brent finished school online through distance education. Although they only had shells of songs when they arrived, the rest of the album shaped up fast through a marathon session. We didn't have a day off in the five and a half weeks we were there, 12 or 14 hours a day. By the end of that, we were completely exhausted. This is an insane way. That they wanted to kill each other. To record an album. Yeah, this is like nuts. It is not the standard recording process for most bands like usually they have had more time to like write songs and play shows and figure out like what they want to do and how they want to sound basically a nearly a year-long process yeah they went into the studio with like this huge mishmash of ideas like massively disparate influences and underdeveloped limbic systems yeah (laughs) and (laughs) like 
Matt Squire's job was basically to like wrangle all of that. Um, so they discuss yeah. it a little bit in Where Are Your Boys in Where Are Your Boys Tonight uh, through mm-hmm. interviews with Spencer and Brendan, as well as with their producer Matt Squire. They all talk about how recording was like kind of a mess, and they had all these ideas for like the more instrumental, more like vaudevillian songs, and then the more electronic, more like modern songs. Um, and Matt Squire is actually the one who convinced them to split the band or to split the album into two halves with the like electronic first half and then the second like instrumental vaudeville half, Mm -hmm. which ended up being like the like iconic like gimmick of that album. And like what makes it so fucking good. (laughs) Yeah. The same article in the Las Vegas review also notes that a lot of the local bands like were really hating Panic at this time, not regarding them as peers. Mm -hmm. So Rob Ruckus, a longtime scene fixture who played in local bands Jupiter Shifter, The Vermin, and The Western Bone Cleavers, said, they're not a Las Vegas band, they're an internet band. They haven't paid any dues. Which, true, but it is also so cool to think of them as, like, the first internet band. Like, they were from online. Yeah, and then, like, that kind of set the stage for a bunch of other bands getting popular via online first Mm -hmm. without playing any shows and then getting immensely popular in the scene. And especially when it comes to like that electronic, more sceny sound, which I think that this first half of A Fever Can't Sweat Out did help give the foundation for yeah to build into like neon pop genre that became like so ubiquitous Mm -hmm. with what uh, emo slash scene in particular looked like by like 2010 yeah so in august 2005 like in the middle of recording in maryland they came back to vegas to play their first ever live show at a venue called the alley they would go on to spend the rest of 2005 like from september onward touring as an opening act for follow-up on the nintendo fusion tour quickly learning how to play their own songs live and what their identity was as a band so like in August and September, they wrap up recording this album, just written all of these songs, and then almost immediately they're like, okay, we have to figure out how to play this live really fast because we're opening for fucking Fallout Boy mm-hmm. on, like, a huge branded tour. Insane that the Which is nuts. gamble on them. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's Pete Wentz. Like, if Fallout Boy says, hey, like, I'm starting my new label, I've, like, dedicated it to, like, weird new sounds... He already had Gym Class Heroes and Panic at the Disco. Mm -hmm. And these are sounds that, like, no one has heard in emo because no one was doing either of those things. Like, no one was doing hip-hop. No one was doing vaudeville. And he says, fucking trust me. I guess they were like, okay. Like, you haven't been wrong yet. Like, everyone said Fall Out Boy was going to crash. And, like, look what's happening. So, Mm -hmm. here we go. A Fever You Can't Sweat Out was released in September. And it debuts at number one on the billboard heat seekers chart crazy nuts for a band that had nuts. played like a handful of shows at this point yeah i like distinctly remember mm-hmm. when the panic of the disco wave started mm-hmm. and i think it was by like october that like i rate sins not tragedies was fucking everywhere yeah it was so you could fast. not escape that song at all um no it and pitchfork famously Gave it 1.5. Um, and who really gives a shit about Pitchfork's opinion? As expected of Pitchfork, yeah. Like, they talk about this a lot in Where Are Your Boys Tonight? Like, they basically just always, like, every chapter or so, someone will be like, well, Pitchfork fucking hated it because Pitchfork hated emo music. 
and hated oh our God, scene yeah. and like did not think that it had any artistic value and like they really only wanted to hear like the strokes and if it wasn't the strokes they thought it was garbage and that even like extended into not to like sidebar not even extended into the indie community itself like i remember being on live journal and being in a couple like indie communities and also being in the emo communities and if i ever talked about anything emo in the indie communities that like eviscerated that Mm -hmm. was like my first instance of like online bullying was in indie music communities yeah where i mentioned that like hey maybe i want to panic at the disco tattoo one day and they're like you like you're a piece of shit like you have no (laughs) taste like why are we even in this community why would Mm -hmm. you ever want to get panic at the disco lyrics tattooed on you blah 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 yeah and then you go over to the emo communities and everyone is listening to death cat for cutie oh yeah everyone's listening to stars everyone's listening to modest mouse like (laughs) like it's It's a little like how, and I mean, it's kind of the opposite of this, honestly, where people will talk about how some book readers will, like, only read, like, young adult or will only read romance Mm -hmm. and won't read classics or anything ever. But people who read classics will typically also read, like, young adult or romance. Like, they'll have, like, a very kind of diverse media diet. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit like that. Like, people who were into emo were also... Like, realizing, like, okay, well, like, I'm listening to this artist, but they have influences from, like, all these other genres, so, like, I, like, want to know what the references are, so, like, I'll listen to that, and, like, the, like, pitchfork scene was really more, like, well, no, like, I only want to listen to this. Right. And I'm not going to listen to anything else, and if you do, you're stupid, and it's garbage, and it's a waste of time. Meanwhile, like, Panic! The Disco cites Radiohead as one of their biggest influences. Mm -hmm. Like, the fucking gods of indie music. Yeah. People who loved Pitchfork worshipped at the feet of Tom York. Like, mm-hmm. be serious. But I mean, Pitchfork still fucking it's, blows. It's but. very like, yeah. Like, remember when fucking Halsey said like the basement that Pitchfork writes out of should like fucking blow up or something? <laughs> or like, I wish that building yeah. would collapse. And people were like, "Girl, that's the World Trade Center." <laughs> Yeah, but here's the thing. She's right. Like, they are historically just fucking wrong about everything. Like, they also hated Three Cheers for Sweet Revenge when that came out. And it's like, why? Don't you guys like Like, fun? It's it's just like, okay, if it's not to your taste, fine. You cannot sit there and say that it is not a technically good record. Because it objectively is. Like... It is, and Ray Toro is like the greatest guitar player of the of our generation, and I'm not just saying that because Mike McCormick is my favorite band. That is a objective fact. No, it's fully like a combination of like one people don't respect emo music, two people don't respect Puerto Ricans, and like yeah. that's why people just like pretend that this is not our generation's Brian May, and that someday right? another generation will have their generation's Ray Toro, and it's okay. Like you can all pretend that that's not happening, but it's happening. Like. Uh, and speaking of like negative reviews this like fully did not stop the like exponentially huge trajectory that they had into fame like they went from nobodies to somebody's basically overnight yeah so like in a very short period of time they filmed their video for their first single i race is not tragedies which is like one of the most iconic music video of all, uh, music videos of all time. Yeah, and this video would go a really long way with like informing Panic's early aesthetic. Famously, they used the Vincent Dossier vaudeville Cirque to be the dancers and performers in that music video. 
mm-hmm. which like they're still active today. They do fantastic work. You should go and check out what they do there because like circus performance is fucking wild mm-hmm. and they're like the most like unrespected part of like in my opinion some of the most unrespected performers and artists in theater and they should be respected far more than they actually are mm. but uh Lucent dossier would then go on to join panic on their like second major headliner tour which is nothing rhymes with circus and obviously you're gonna have the circus performers and nothing rhymes with circus tour and turned panic's like tour into full-blown theater which is like so fucking cool mm-hmm. but i write since not tragedies ended up winning them their first vma for best video in 2006 and that's like a huge award mm-hmm. like the vmas are kind of like whatever now yeah. but this was still in the era of like mtv dominance trl where you got your music videos from was mtv yeah everyone who was younger watched mtv this was, was before like, mtv stopped mattering this was kind of like the you know like we still had steven's untitled rock show we still had fuse we still had mm-hmm. like you would tune in to see videos premiere yeah like i remember i did that for several videos mm-hmm. so like them winning at the vmas like the best video was fucking massive Mm -hmm. so yeah like 2006 was basically the year of panic of the disco yeah they had signed to pete wentz's new album they had a best-selling album they had a vma like a hordes of fans like it it was insane the amount of people who became panic of the disco fans Mm -hmm. and they also created a very distinct visual code and aesthetic for themselves that became like instantly recognizable and like really did a lot to like boost their brand early on. Yeah. For what that for what it was. So Yeah. They did like the weird page boy Victorian Street Urchin meets circus meets Tim Burton movie. Like, Tim Burton movies. Yeah. It's fucking Rose Vest. Yeah. It's it, like they just have so many like instantly identifiable looks from that era. Um, Which is where the like influence of My Chemical Romance comes in because My Chemical Romance defined themselves uh, with a uniform. Every single era is, is the uniform. Yeah, they yeah. to define the era and like that's where the influence of um, My Chemical Romance comes in on Panic at the Disco. Yeah, majorly. And it also like it seems like they almost knew how they would be received mm-hmm. when you look at London Beckham songs about money written by machines. You look at the lyrics to that and like. You know, Ryan writes, like, we're a wet dream for the webzine. Make us it, make us hit, make us scene, or just shrug us off your shoulders. Don't believe a single word that we wrote. It's like, you knew before you had played a show, before you had an album out, before you had received a review of your work, that you were going to be, like, the trend. You were going to be Mm -hmm. the it boys. And you also knew that you were not going to be respected by mainstream music journalism. Because you could see that that was the wave that was how emo was being treated that was how you were going to be perceived and like you would find your audience but you would also like be so relentlessly shit on even while it's a having like the audience and like the like crowd strength to Mm -hmm. win a vma like it takes a remarkable amount of self-awareness to come to terms with that so early on rather than it being a retrospective look and response mm-hmm. to what you received versus just knowing that was going to happen that I feel like a lot of 
emo again like didn't really grapple with until they like received any sort of mainstream attention and like it kind of showed more so that emo was really finally leaving the basement Mm -hmm. and now this was like a thing that outsiders were going to have an opinion on Mm -hmm. and like understood that emo was going to like change the cultural landscape of the early 2000s Mm -hmm. so like holy shit ryan ross yeah you knew what was up (laughs) like writing we swear to shake it up if you swear to listen like Mm -hmm. he fucking knew what he was talking about he knew what was going to happen like and that i think relates to him being like such a huge pete Wentz fan like i think that that is partly like that influence but i think that's partly also just like ryan being like an incredibly observant shrewd like member of a subculture and like being able to see how things have happened in the past and how things are going to continue to happen and that's why he was briefly an english major yep (laughs) (laughs) um so things were going fucking terrific for this band and and then they go kind of wrong a little bit bad pretty fast (laughs) a little a little bit bad something incorrect happens a little yucky in May of 2006, it's like shortly after they got their VMA, I think, um, or yeah. around the same time, Panic announces that bassist and founding member Brent Wilson would be leaving the band. Mm-hmm. In an article posted to MTV News by James Montgomery, always at the fucking scene of the crime. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, depending on who you ask, the recent split between Panic at the Disco and bassist Brent Wilson was either completely amicable or decidedly the opposite. Late Wednesday, Panic announced Wilson's departure on their website, posting a statement that was both diplomatic and entirely inscrutable. On one hand, it contained all the usual platitudes that accompany a split. He's a great friend of ours. He'll definitely be missed. We wish him all the best. Yet it failed to mention the reason why Wilson is leaving Panic. And perhaps because of this vagueness, coupled with the cup, the, the puzzling an- timing of the announcement... Panic's debut album, A Fever You Can't Sweat Out, was recently certified gold, and the band will kick off its first ever North American headlining tour early next month. Many fans began to suspect there was more to Wilson's departure than first beats the eye. Adding fuel to the fire was an angry stream of comments posted on MySpace.com by a person claiming to be Wilson's brother, stating that Wilson was ejected from the band for monetary reasons. Panic have already announced that their friend John Walker, uh, who was at the time a guitar tech and videographer for The Academy Is, will be replacing Wilson, at least for the time being. Mm -hmm. This was buck wild when it happened. Yeah. Yeah. I remember it happening. But also the same, I didn't like really care all that much. I was like, yeah, it's fucking Brent. Who gives a shit? (laughs) Here's the thing is like, there were a lot of fans who definitely really gave a shit. And I remember being like, Mm -hmm. oh, like what the fuck happened? But also Brent was like quite private like he wasn't really like brendan and ryan or like even spencer where like you saw Mm -hmm. a lot of pictures of him and like you heard from him a lot like he didn't Mm -hmm. do a lot um he also like not to be a bitch was not like the hot one so i think people just like weren't paying attention to him as much Mm -mm. and like also he didn't seem to have the same level of like intimacy in their friendships like ryan and spencer did where ryan and spencer Mm -hmm. are have famously had been best friends since they were like 12 yeah like brendan came in and they kind of like immediately welcomed him with open arms and like there's the whole thing of he was immediately brought initially brought in as the guitar player and similar with the story with patrick um they figured out that he could sing and they're like oh shit you get on the mic now Mm because ryan was initially the lead singer yeah so you had like 
all that going on, and then there's nothing really about Brent besides that he kind of was the what feels like the only person that they knew that played bass guitar. Yeah, though I mean, it must suck to be like, okay, I'm introducing this guy to the band, and then he immediately becomes like the face of the band, and then you get mm-hmm. kicked out. <laughs> yeah, like rest in peace, dude. But like, it does seem like they had a pretty decent reason. Yeah. So fans were pretty upset about the lineup change initially, especially with both sides of the split having completely different versions of the story. In June, Montgomery published another article on Brent having spoken with him directly in his home in Las Vegas. Brent said, I was kicked out of the band. It was a 100% surprise to me. We were about to leave for a show in California and they called me the night before and told me I was out of the band. The only reason they gave me was that it was for musical purposes. Everything was good and fine. We had just gotten back from a tour in Europe and there had been no previous conversations about anyone leaving the band. I don't know why they chose me. The story that they told made you they, they told you made me really angry because they said the matter was discussed as a band and it wasn't discussed at all. It was done as a phone call and the only person who spoke was Spencer Smith. Apparently, Brendan and Ryan were on speakerphone too, but they didn't say a word. They never even said they were sorry. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, the, oh, what were you going to say? The thing that's interesting to me here is that he's like, I don't know why they chose me as if like the label had said, you have to kick someone out of the band. And they were like, okay, right. it, well, I guess we'll have it be Brent. It's like, they didn't... Like, what is this, RuPaul's uh, All-Stars? <laughs> we were choosing a lipstick? And it just happened to be Brent's name on it? Yeah, it's like, <laughs> they didn't choose you. Like, you were not <laughs> meeting, like, your level of commitment that you need to be meeting to be in the band. Like, sorry. Um, yeah. And then uh, Spencer Smith replied to Montgomery via an email after Brent said this to him, saying, We made the decision based on Brent's lack of responsibility. There we go. Mm -hmm. And the fact that he wasn't progressing musically with the band. Smith said in a lengthy email message, Brent did not write any of his bass parts on the record. Brent did not record one note of bass on the record. Brendan and Ryan wrote all the bass parts and Brendan recorded all the bass parts. We had to simplify some of the bass parts that were recorded because Brent could not play them live. Our record would have sounded absolutely the same even if Brent wasn't in the band during the writing or recording process, he continued. These are all things that only a few people know, and we were fine with that. Stating these things would only make Brent look bad, and we had no intention of doing that. Mm-hmm. So, again, unsurprising that this yeah. was the situation. However, classic, we don't have fully developed frontal lobes yet. Yeah. We don't know how to handle <laughs> interpersonal conflict where they just kicked him out <laughs> instead of having a real conversation. Right. Or elaborating why musical differences meant what it was supposed to mean. Yeah. It's very like, like who knows? Like they could have had this conversation with him and just said like, Hey, like we need you to be doing more. We need you to be like more committed to it. I mean, I'm sure that it's also partly just like you were all children basically. Mm -hmm. And suddenly you were being signed by the biggest band in your scene. And you were becoming the biggest band in your scene this isn't necessarily what he had signed up for, you know? Right. Like, sure, like, you had a, pa- a practice base and you're recording demos. Most people don't immediately go from that to a national tour. No. Where they're a headliner and they're selling out every single night. Like, it's... Like, that doesn't happen. It's a difficult adjustment to make. It still doesn't happen. It still doesn't happen. It's a really hard adjustment to make. Like, good for Ryan and Spencer and Brendan that they were able to keep up with that and that they were able to, like, Mm -hmm. move and develop at a pace that, like, 
was correct for what they were doing. I mm-hmm. don't blame Brent for not being able to do that. Like, I don't think that most people could do that. No, especially if you're not, like, naturally musically inclined, like it seems that Brendan definitely, because we know Brendan's <clears throat> past with, like, being able to play every fucking instrument under the sun. Yeah. But also, like, Ryan and Spencer both had a level of musicality and, like, creativity that they could keep up with that. Yeah. And, like, sometimes people just aren't naturally inclined to do that. That's why sometimes you are just a studio musician. Mm-hmm. But Brent wasn't even that, apparently. Nope. <laughs> nope. So in August of 2006, James Montgomery publishes a third article on The Split in which Brent Wilson announces that he is in the process of pursuing legal action against the remaining members of Panic! at the Disco for his share of royalties on a fever you can't sweat out. Meanwhile, fans on LiveJournal are threatening to burn tickets. They are threatening self-harm. A community called Team Brent Wilson has popped up. Brent's brother, Blake, is talking mad shit on MySpace about contracts and royalties, claiming that on paper, Brent is still a member of the band. The result of this lawsuit, or if it even fucking exists, do not seem to exist online, uh, though Brent does claim that he won. The August 2006 article from James Montgomery notes that when he reached out to Panic spokesperson, they were like, this is actually the first that we're hearing of a lawsuit. Like, we don't know about that. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So, like, whether that was just, like, PR or, like, if Brent genuinely just had not filed, <laughs> I don't know. Here's the thing. You can... The lawsuits are nearly always public. You can go and find records of lawsuits everywhere. <clears throat> yeah. We would have seen this lawsuit... Had it actually existed. It seems to me like he presented them with like a letter, like detailing intent to sue. And then maybe they settled out of mm-hmm. court because there is truly Probably. like no record of this anywhere. Yeah. Presumably. But it me- doesn't count as a lawsuit, Brent. Yeah. Like, but fucking whatever. Like he, he was really like not winning any fans here with like how he was acting. Mm-mm. Despite the people on team Brent yeah, Wilson. literally um i think all of them like fizzled out after hearing from the rest of the band how he had missed shows due to like like he had missed shows in the past just like totally absent or like passed out backstage drunk mm-hmm. john walker had already filled in for him a couple times prior to the announcement that he was like out of the band and being replaced by john mm-hmm. so like as fans came to see like that shittier side of brent it seems like they like tide shifted more in panic's favor and like the the girlies grew to really love John. Yeah. He was like a mainstay in the Chicago scene already. Like he was friends with the Academy Mm -hmm. is, he was friends with fallout boy. He had been in a band in Chicago. briefly. Yeah. So like, you know, like he, he just like was a good fit. He was connected in the scene and he like fully just like took Brent's place. And he also fit the aesthetic really well. Like he was good at wearing yeah. those clothes. He was good at wearing eyeliner. And he also had a personality. He did have a really good personality. He was a very fun guy. Yeah. He's still very fucking funny online. He's hilarious online. Yeah. If you don't follow John Walker on like social media, please do so because he is, he loves to stir the pot. Yeah. That is a bitch who loves mess. Um. And lives for the drama. <laughs> it's his favorite thing in the world. Also in August of 2006, while all this shit is going on and like while mm-hmm. fucking Brent is like threatening to sue them, um, Panic played Reading Festival for the first time. The crowd was mm-hmm. excessively rowdy. And this is the show where Brendan was knocked unconscious after being hit in the head with a bottle that was thrown by an audience member. He recovered off stage, got back up, and the band fucking finished their set. And this is like the incident that we've referenced several times in discussing like the general society's reaction to emo why the reaction to emo was that way in relation to like 
stage gay, performative gender, relationship with toxic masculinity, the culture of homophobia within the early 2000s. So, like, we don't know for sure if this crowd was acting this way and if Brendan was, throw, was like, throwing a bottle, whether it was, like, hate crime shit, just rowdiness, the general dislike for Panic at the Disco, disrespect, whatever, whatever, whatever. It doesn't matter, though, because it mm-hmm. all, like, still fits within this, like, web of contexts and, like, major, like, players going on culturally right because like here's the thing is like even if the person who threw the bottle was saying oh it's just because i don't like their music it's because i don't like their look it's like okay but like why don't you like it enough that Mm -hmm. you want to do an act of violence like this was stuff that like no one was saying like oh this is homophobia and like at the time none of this band was out as anything though brendan has since come out as pansexual as far as we knew these were four straight guys on stage who were just like also wearing eyeliner but like their proximity to emo to uh men who were wearing women's jeans to men who are wearing makeup Mm -hmm. to men who are talking about their feelings that was like prompting violent responses in a lot of people yeah and like besides shit that had been thrown at my chemical romance i feel like this was the one of the bigger more public instance like instances of violence against an emo band like at a festival yeah which is crazy like made news yeah and then we move on to them doing their second major headlining tour which is the infamous nothing rhymes with circus tour this is a tour that i wish i had gone to more than anything else besides warp tour 05 (laughs) yeah same this is like the tour of all time so fucking cool um, it is the tour that is like on their first ever tour DVD um, that came with the mm-hmm. special limited edition of A Fever You Can't Sweat Out. Spectacular show. So their first headlining tour had been an unnamed tour during the spring and summer of 2006. It did feature costumes and makeup and later on the circus. And they expanded on all of this for Nothing Rhymes With Circus, adding like skits and more elaborate performances and dance breaks and like really just like laying on the vaudeville the Cirque du Soleil the like grimy Vegas strip vibe so fucking cool the production was and they basically made a vaudeville show yeah for their tour Broadway basically yeah they had sets costumes like the what could be considered like little scenes in in between things like sure it wasn't a and it's like all multiple like actors and stuff they basically did vaudeville yeah which is kind of fun to see they put their money where their mouth is we're gonna do half back half vaudeville sounding record but now we're actually gonna do it yeah like it's not just the sound it's like we're gonna fucking put on Mm -hmm. a show for you Mm -hmm. so they featured costumes and makeup by anthony franco who uh mostly does costume design for like movies and tv um he did costume design for freaks and geeks love that yeah and whose website features like some really prominent photos of brendan like just in some like nice suit jackets so i guess that he has continued to work with the band to this day yeah which is cool yeah uh lighting and art direction by rob gibson who's also done art direction for fallout boy my chem incubus weezer and gibson um so like there's an article in where did this article get posted a live design online that talked about Mm -hmm. like the set design and like the stage and how they did this show Gibson brought this concept that he had for like the vaudeville stage to atomic design um where it was put in the hands of a scenic designer named Mike Rhodes Gibson and Rhodes Mm -hmm. fine-tuned the design and brought in longtime friends and associates Tate Towers to handle staging and custom risers because a couple of the bands so like Spencer 
And um, this guy, I think his name was like something, Bartram, Mm -hmm. who played like their cello and their keyboards a lot, were up on custom risers so that you could see them all the time. Um, Spencer's riser was also like a merry-go-round. So like central to the theme is a large circus big top and tenting, a lion cage keyboard riser, and a merry-go-round drum riser that opened up to reveal an entrance for the dancers. The band also wanted to sense that they are playing in the round with a contemporary audience on one side and a Victorian one on the other. Working from a concept that Gibson had the band had put forward, Rhodes created the Victorian-era audience digitally. This image was then hand-colored by fellow atomic designer Joanna Davis and printed in large format to create the band the look that the band desired. This is so cool because it's like, yeah. okay... The, the record is, like, half modern, half, like, Victorian, half, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And they make the Victorian, like, the old time, the set, and then the audience themselves are representing the modern half of the record. Like, uh, it's so fucking cool. Like, no like, one was doing this. Like, no one. <laughs> they were catering to such a specific fucking audience. So, like, it's wild to me that they were, that the audience is as big as it was. Because it's mm-hmm. like, this is such a specific type of person that you would think like, oh, that's nobody. And instead it ended up being this like massive community, like hundreds of people turning out every night. Yeah. And, and a- also like, this is coming out at the same time as My Kamoko Romance was about to like drop the Black Parade. Mm-hmm. So like, we are now going to have, like, we have Peggy the Disco doing a huge theatrical production. Then we have My Kamoko Romance doing like a huge theatrical production that they've never had access to doing before. And then we're going to have fallout boy do infinity on high. So we have basically what is considered the Holy Trinity of emo, basically just putting on theater. <laughs> as yeah. Tours. Cause the infinity on high tour, they didn't have like the same level of uh, like theatricality or like costuming or anything that either mm-hmm. panic or my cam had, but like Pete was definitely like in an outfit every night yeah and like our that tour did have like a theme too like that was the young wild things tour so it was very like Mm -hmm. where the wild things are combined with like this album about like coping with being famous and being in a new world and addiction and alienation like they were all grappling with like huge new themes that they hadn't really done before so we are priming ourselves for like emo has always been dramatic, but now we're taking dramatic into the dramatic arts of theater mm-hmm. in here. And I was actually having a conversation, um, not to like sidebar from Hang of the Disco history, but I was talking about this with my boyfriend because he like what we talked about in the like last episode is that he was never really like an emo kid or pop punk, despite his older brother like listening to emo and pop punk. And he was like, it's because I don't like theater. I've never been a theater person. I don't like musicals. This kind of emo that's not like the Midwest emo sound or the like uh, traditional more hardcore emo sound. He's like, I don't like it because it's basically a musical soundtrack. Mm -hmm. And I was like, see, now that's why I love it because I'm a musical person. I'm a theater person. And that's why gay people fucking flock yeah (laughs) (laughs) so yeah it's like it's all wrapped up and kind of in that like sphere of stuff Mm -hmm. but fuck i wish i had seen nothing on the circus i'm also glad that there's like existing interviews of like the stage design because like that's a huge unsung part of literally any production that involves Mm -hmm. like scenery and set work those people like never get the credit that they deserve 
Uh, similarly with costumes and everything. So like, I'm glad that these interviews exist. <laughs> oh yeah, sick. And like with those, with the costuming and with the staging, like playing such a huge role in how then fans of Panic at the Disco dressed. It's like yeah. you guys like helped create a cultural moment. Like I think that that deserves mm-hmm. like I don't know like some praise. Like get For a sure. little fucking commotion so all of that is to say that this tour was like a huge yeah. fucking undertaking especially for a band so early on in their careers like one of the things that brent had been suing for was that he was like oh like they're making all this money on these tours and like that's why they kicked me out so they only have to split it three ways instead of four ways and it's like well one they immediately replace you so they're still splitting yeah, it four so- ways and two spencer has gone on record as being like look at the fucking production on this tour we broke even like right like they that's made it no money on this thing. there's no money to split like <laughs> be serious dude yeah so it was fully like well i want my share and it's like cool here's five dollars because like that's what you would have earned like yeah <laughs> um the tour was also supported by the hush sound the dresden dolls uh okay go for a few dates and love drug for a few dates i think that block party also showed up for a few of these shows i think so that sounds right i love that the hush sound was here Another Chicago band that I believe Ryan played a role in introducing Pete to, Mm -hmm. you know, further cementing his status as, like, Pete Wentz Jr. He was like, I'm also going to go find, like, a weird (laughs) band (laughs) that we have to sign. Like, truly, not to drag Austin Knight into this now, but I'm like, you think that you're the new Pete Wentz? Like, you have to do your fucking homework and start looking at Ryan Ross. Literally, that's who you have to go find a fucking weird group of theater kids who all went to Catholic school, who are writing a concept album, who are doing folk music, and get them on your label, and then we can talk about you being Pete Wentz. Right? <laughs> That's what I need you to do. And I believe that he can. But you gotta... But you he gotta hasn't step yet. Game up. The Dresden Dolls on this tour also, they, like, made a really great music video for their song Backstabber that, like, features everyone in Panic! at the Disco. Mm-hmm. Um, spawned a ton of memes. Just, like, terrific video. Like, go watch that. It's for sure, like, three pixels wide at this point in time. But, like, (laughs) so fun. And this is also the tour that inspired Dresden Dolls to, or, like, at least Amanda herself, Palmer herself, to write uh, Guitar Hero. Yeah, that Uh, song's about Ryan. That song song is about Ryan because it was, she wrote that, like, I was on this tour for, like, this big band that were, like, they were so young. Like, we all know it was Panic Amanda. Like, you don't, you can drop the name. Mm-hmm. Where they were going on stage every single night and performing, like, their huge rock stars. But then would go back to their bus and just play Guitar Hero and, like, not do anything else. And yeah. she thought, that, like, the juxtaposition and, like, basically coping strategy was a, an interesting thing to write about. And I don't blame her for writing about it. Like, that, yeah, mm-hmm. it had to have been weird for them. Oh, Yeah. Absolutely. It's also like, I don't know, I would feel weird if this song got written about me. Mm, for sure. But I mean, it's, you know, it's Amanda Palmer. Like, it's... Yeah. And also, like, that's the nature of, like, being in a scene where, like, everyone writes songs about each other. Yeah. Like, and it's the nature of Amanda Palmer being, like, not even morally dubious, just, like, socially, this is, like, kind of a weird thing to do. But also, the song fucking slaps. So, like, you know, what are any of us going to do? Like again, we are Amanda Palmer music apologists on this show. Only music, to be so fucking clear. I really dislike her as a person at this point in time. Yeah, I think she sucks. Runs in the family is a good song. Like it's out of my hands. I, I can't. I, I coin operated boy. Like Ugh. I can't. Like, it's I, so good. <laughs> so 
like, whatever. Whatever. And at this point, Panic only had one album, so not enough material for a full headlining show unless they played the album front to back, which honestly, they probably just should have done that. I mean, they mostly did. They played, like, like, most of their songs. Like, a little out of order, but, like, again. I didn't go, <laughs> but they did their car uh, covers of Karma Police by Radiohead, which is a phenomenal cover. And it like rips my heart out. It's like the definitive version of that song for me. It's like way better than the original. Yeah. Like Ryan Ross adding the like, I'm afraid that I parts to the bridge. Like, perfect. Come perfect. On. That's the only version of the song that I want to hear. They also did Killer Queen by Queen mm-hmm. and Eleanor Rigby by the Beatles. Yeah. Which like, honestly, kind of sets a tone for a musical direction that they're like the diverting paths of Panic the Disco will take because we Mm -hmm. have Eleanor Rigby going towards Pretty Odd Era and then Killer Queen going towards what Brendan would end up doing post Mm -hmm. uh, split from Ryan Ross basically and like even when I saw Panic I want to say like 2016-2017 like, he was still doing covers of Queen. Yeah. So, like, it kind of is poetic in that way. So, yeah. And then, as you were mentioning earlier, this was the tour that was professionally recorded and immortalized on the special edition of A Fever You Can't Sweat Out. Mm-hmm. So, that's sick. Yeah. And also, Nothing Rhymes with Circus marks a huge shift for the band. So, like, it was around this time that music journalists and major publications started giving a shit and, like, taking the time to understand the band's appeal because, again huge overnight success Mm -hmm. massive tour where like they have put so much money into it that they're definitely not breaking even people are going nuts over this band what the fuck is going on so like now people were kind of paying attention because it was no longer an issue of like not paying your dues and more of a thing of like how do you guys fucking manage this Mm -hmm. so yeah so like from yet another mtv news article by our good friend james montgomery like honestly you would disco scholar you would think that this guy was the only person working for mtv in the 2000s because if you find any article on mtv news about literally any emo band it's like oh who, who wrote it is it fucking james montgomery again yeah obviously it's james montgomery He's the only guy who not, works at MTV. They must have not had a lot of writers on that beat. I guess. Which, like, would check out given the culture's general attitude towards emo pop punk. I mean, true. popularity on MTV. But that's just me hypothesizing. That, that could be entirely untrue. I don't know the history of, you know, MTV News's um, labor practices yeah. <laughs> and staff writing positions in me neither. 2006. So James Montgomery wrote about Nothing Rhymes with Circus. Uh, When taken as a whole, the show recalls no other traveling rock extravaganza in recent times. Rather, in terms of both context and content, it most closely resembled Janet Jackson's audience-dividing hypersexual 1998 Velvet Rope Tour. All that was missing was a chair dance. But maybe this is not such a bad thing. Perhaps Generation MySpace needs to get in touch with all those naughty things deep inside. Taking pouty pictures doesn't count. And maybe Panic realized all this. Which, like, yeah, they, they did. They did. Yeah. Brendan and Ryan both growing up in, like, these super repressed religious households. Mm-hmm. And then going on to get really into emo and really into Chuck Palahniuk and really into, you know, the, like, seedy Las Vegas aesthetic of it all. Uh, yeah. They were very much like, okay, let's get in touch with, like, the underbelly let's get in touch with like the dirty thoughts let's get in touch with Mm -hmm. like the nasty stuff that we're not supposed to 
like be talking about, let alone thinking about. And I think that was definitely part of their success is like they were sexy in a way that a lot of emo wasn't at the time. Yeah. And also this is a portion of American history where as a general reaction to, you know, a post 9-11 world, the Iraq war, the rise of conservative politics, it was Butch's, Butch's administration, that conservative evangelical Christianity was at the forefront of culture. Mm-hmm. So much of everything that dominated like mainstream culture at the time was through this lens. And you even see it in mainstream fashion trends where like the clothing gets super duper conservative after Y2K, mm. which was, you know, popularized by like incredibly skimpy outfits, like the whale tails showing Etc. Etc. So, like, of course, like that was popular with teenagers, like with Juicy Couture and like what Paris Hilton was dressing like and all that. But people hated that mm-hmm. because it wasn't coming from a conservative lens. And so we finally have a band like Pank at the Disco, who is from that like not necessarily evangelical background, but still like heavily repressed Christian-aligned background coming through and just delivering a record that is so hypersexual in a genre that is so hated mm-hmm. that like nothing no one else could have basically done this except for them yeah writing and it was songs huge. about sex and, like, writing songs about strip clubs writing you know mm-hmm. songs again, about there is like the in cd motel of like you guys are writing songs about this but you've never experienced it before in your life yeah like <laughs> i don't know but it's you know like that's that's what kids do they're imagining what it would yeah. be like to be an adult and it, a lot of it is with like some shocking accuracy, mm-hmm. uh, maybe not so shocking given that they lived in Vegas and like would have yeah. had some proximity. And in a suburb of Vegas, no less. They lived yeah. in like Summerlin, which is the major suburb of Vegas. Yeah. Though Ryan Ross's so, dad, I believe, was like a croupier. Like he worked at a casino. Um, mm-hmm. So like Ryan would have had some access to that, you know, that kind of knowledge, I suppose. Oh, yeah. Like if you are a listener and you want like a more like cultural context of vegas from the perspective of a local living there go watch so if you have an hbo max subscription mm-hmm. go watch the new the anthony Bernay no reservations episode on <clears throat> vegas it like provides actually a great like context for why panic of this goes the way that it is i re- recently rewatched it and i was like holy shit no wonder panic is like this god yeah. okay exactly in this same article, uh, James Montgomery also mentions that, like, they're not very heavy on rock, which, like, I solidly disagree with. Like, rock is, yeah. like, a big fucking tent genre. And if we can call Queen rock when they were also doing, like, orchestral, operatic, like, big sound music, um, mm-hmm. then, like, Panic solidly fits into that same, like, category. Like, that's rock music. Holy. I mean, he also says... On this night, Panic played valiantly and sent the crowd home happy and a little hoarse. And really, that's what matters. Rock journalists can cast stones from afar. Haters can blog with a vengeance. But in the end, Panic still controls a vast army of loyal and vocal fans. Mm -hmm. uh, 12,000 of whom get to connect with their idols at this really big ticket show on a Tuesday. Yep. True. You know, like not to use the like stand Twitter argument of like, okay, well, you don't have to like them, but like. They outsold your fave, but it's like, (laughs) they outsold your fave. Like, yeah, they, like, you can say that they're not rock. You can say that they're not good enough, but like they, they were doing something and they were connecting with an audience Mm -hmm. as that tour. It was, it was unbelievable. And as that tour 
concluded in December of 2006, uh, so ended a year of near-constant touring. It had been just over a year since the release of A Fever You Can't Sweat Out. They had gone from being a band that had never played a show to being one of the biggest bands on the planet. So in late December, they begin to formulate plans for their next album. Um, and that is where we are going to leave you today. Yep. On a huge cliffhanger. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Which I feel like a lot of people... You know how the story ends. Hmm? Like, they know how the story ends. We know how the story ends. Yeah. You wouldn't be here otherwise if you didn't know how the story ends. <laughs> but it's like a, a thing of like, did you get into Panic at the Disco right after this album came out when you were waiting for a new one? Or did you get into Panic at the Disco after the new album came out and you got shocked to your system? Mm-hmm. So it'll be fun when we get into the nitty gritty of that new album, which we all know which is coming. But yeah. 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 So that's part one of our brief history of panic at the disco mm-hmm. lots of info yeah Hell go yeah. listen to the only difference between suicide and martyrdom is press coverage and yeah. just fucking get into it like if you haven't listened to fever you can't sweat out from top to bottom recently go do it, it i did it recently and i was like so Fuck. well like it's so it, like, fucking it, solid it's so good and listen to it in the sequencing that it is yeah because those this transitions my, are flawless uh, this is our plea as a podcast for like music in general at this point is fucking listen to albums in order in the order yeah. that they come out in because a body of matters and uh and artists really give a shit about albums and how albums flow into one song to another and it provides a larger context and better understanding of the idea of an album as a whole and why songs from certain albums get par- more popular than other ones and you should do it and especially if it's like you're a person who is like relatively new to emo the sequencing on those albums matter a lot so don't just like cherry pick the popular songs like go back and listen to like shit from top to bottom mm-hmm. yeah that's your homework for today yeah <laughs> professors uh chloe and ria are signing out now yeah <laughs> as your emo historians mm-hmm. emo history professors all right is that gonna do it for us i think it's gonna do it for us again uh, this podcast was uh, powered by Moonshot Podcast. We heard a little bit from one of our friends over there in the middle of the episode, and I encourage you to actively go check them out. And again, rate, review, follow, and then also follow us over at So Emo Pod on Instagram and Twitter, and we'll catch you for the next part. Yeah. Or when we go see Follow Boy next, like in two weeks. <laughs> yeah. One of those things. Yeah. One um, of those things. Who knows? Yeah. All right. Play it by ear. All right. Yeah. Bye. Kung Fu Grip. Kung Fu Grip. As so- you can see, I had to use my uh, judo on Gerard. Yeah, I see that Gerard's actually gone to pieces here during this interview. Sometimes it happens. I just well, got so emo, I fell apart. That's what actually happened. You got that sad? That's. <laughs>